Hi, College Park Castleton. Even though we're not in our building together, we are certainly united by our spirit. And even though our building is empty this morning, I hope our hearts are full, full of the love of God and full of confidence that his grace will be sufficient for us this day. Um, it's good that we just sang of uh, the unchanging God that we serve, the ancient of days, because so much has been changing over these last few days, hasn't it? Uh, it seems like a month ago that we were together, it was actually just last Sunday, when Governor Holcomb had just declared a statewide public health emergency. Since that time, new guidelines have come out locally, a national emergency has been declared, and we have just seen our life, and both locally and nationally, change dramatically. For that reason, in line with Governor Holcomb's policy for uh, unnecessary uh, gatherings, particularly ones that bring together large groups of people like churches. Uh, the elders at College Park Castleton have decided that we will not meet again in person at least for 30 days. That would mean the first Sunday we could possibly meet together again would be Easter Sunday. We also will be canceling all events and activities that would normally happen in our church. Uh, all of this is out of an abundance of caution, realizing the great blessing that we have been given by God of local officials with expertise and competence in this area. Uh, we don't want to be fearful, but we also want to be good stewards, good neighbors, and wise disciples of Jesus. But I was reading a bit about how the church has dealt with situations like this. It turns out we're not the first Christians that have been limited from being able to meet together even because of something like a, a virus going around. Back in 1918, the Spanish flu was keeping churches from being able to meet. Afterward, one of the pastors that was af uh, affected by this had some reflections that he uh, shared in a message. It went by the, the pastor's name is Francis Grimke. He said this, the fact that churches were places of religious gathering and others not, would not affect in the least the health question involved. If avoiding crowds lessens the danger of being infected, it was wise to take the precaution and not needlessly run in danger and expect God to protect us. That's wisdom that the Church of Jesus Christ has gathered over the, uh, the ages that we need to learn from. And so we're going to take this seriously as a church. I know this is inconvenient. Uh, it's certainly strange for me as a preacher to be preaching to an empty room. And yet, brothers and sisters, if this is what it means to be faithful to Jesus, let's do this without grumbling. Let's do this with confidence. And let's do this with full assurance that this is the Lord's timing and his provision for us. It's not lost on me that this period of us not meeting will mean that the first weeks that we would be a self-governing, independent congregation would be meet, weeks that we are unable to meet together physically. And yet we have seen God's kindness and his sovereignty over so much of our church's life. Why would we start to doubt him now? The mere fact that we have the technology to continue these, having these sorts of services together to, to unite in this way, uh, I see that as God's grace to us, and I hope you'll draw confidence from that grace. I was uh, on a conference call with some other pastors, and we were discussing what we would be preaching this Sunday morning. When I told them that I was going to be preaching about extravagant grace 
and the loving community of our church, uh, one of the brothers burst into laughter and he said, uh, brother, if you could give me access to your preaching calendar, it seems like it's a prophetic word from God. Uh, I think it's so fitting that the series that God has us in, at the core, what we are about as a church, this morning gives us a reminder of God's extravagant grace to us and his unstoppable love that all of us can take confidence and security from. So this morning, we're going to continue our series at the core, look at two of our um, core values this morning. And we're going to do that by focusing in on Matthew chapter 20, Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. When so much is changing, it's good for us to, whether in season or out of season, to turn our attention to God's word. So hear then the words written down for us in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give to you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing and said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You, go into the vineyard too. And evening came, and the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up until the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last work worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Do you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wasn't long ago when the U.S. women's soccer team won the World Cup. They won the big one. And in the celebrations that ensued afterward, there was a moment that was caught by the cameras. One of the stars of the team, by the name of Megan Raponi, said that uh, was caught on camera mouthing, I earned this, I deserve this. Now, undoubtedly, she was a big part of winning that championship, and so you could understand the feeling that she had in that moment. And yet it illustrates something that is pervasive in our society, the idea that you have to earn it, you've got to get it, because no one is going to give it to you. 
Maybe it's not a sporting event. Maybe you experienced this this week in Costco trying to get toilet paper. No one's going to give it to you. And if you're not careful, someone might even take it from you. We all know this idea. It's how the world economy works. You've got to earn it. You've got to get it. But when we take that principle and apply it to ourselves spiritually, it puts us in very dangerous territory. Because the kingdom of God is very different. The kingdom of God doesn't operate on a currency of I deserve this. It operates on a currency of I have received this. It operates on the currency of grace. That's why Jesus told this parable to his disciples. Uh, In Matthew 19, uh, right before he told the parable, that his disciples had seen a rich man come to Jesus. And uh, if anyone should have been allowed in the kingdom of heaven, it certainly would have been him. But but Jesus gave him this hard, hard test. He said, "If, if you really want, if you really want life eternal, you have to give all your possessions away and go give them to the poor. Well, after he refused to do this, the disciples, they, they thought, well, you know, think of all the things we have given up. Peter chimed up. He said, Lord, what, are we, what is it that we deserve? And that's the occasion for Jesus telling this parable, a parable designed to teach them of God's grace, to shift their thinking from the world's economy to God's kingdom's economy, from earning to receiving. The way the parable unfolds is a very familiar setting to people back in those days. It was a a, a landowner who owns a vineyard who needs workers. So early in the morning, he goes out. You see that in verses 1 and 2. He goes out to the city square. It would be a a common place for people looking for work. People in those days used to work day to day. They weren't check to check. They were literally morning to morning. You would earn the food that you would eat the next day, the day before. So people would be out actively looking for work. And so this vineyard owner needs workers, and there's workers that need work, and so he hires them. Now we're told they agreed on the wage they would receive. It would be a denarius. That would have been the expected wage for your middle class citizen back in those days. It was enough to support a family for a single day. A fair wage for a fair day's work. But then in verses 3 through 5, we see uh, some not-so-normal things. It turns out that this is a bit of an oddball owner of this field. Uh, He went out the first time at the beginning of the day, which would have been understood to be around 6 a.m., but look what happens in verse 3. And And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. So three hours later, around nine o'clock in the morning, he rolls back up into the city square and decides, you know what? I'm going to hire another batch of workers. Now, you might be forgiven for thinking at this moment, is this guy just a poor planner? Uh, Maybe you've had one of those projects that starts snowballing on you as you get into it. You you end up making uh, not just one trip to Lowe's or Home Depot, but two or three or four or five trips in a day. Uh, Or maybe you realize, oh, this is not a one-man job. It's a two- or a three-man job, and you have to get additional people to come help you. So you might think that's what's going on with this, this, uh, this oddball owner, that he's just a poor planner. But... That doesn't seem to fit because we're going to see he he does this not just once, not just twice, 
not just three times. He's going to do this repeatedly throughout the day. He either is the most incompetent manager of all, or he has something different driving this decision. Now, now notice that this time when he hires them, he doesn't tell them they're going to get a denarius. He tells them that he'll give them, verse 4, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give to you. He just says, I'll pay you fairly, and they take his word on it. They go. Then we see this pattern repeat itself, not just at 9 o'clock, but at noon and at 3 o'clock. He does this over and over again, later and later into the day, hiring more and more workers to go into his vineyard and work. This is certainly not the normal way to operate a vineyard. He is certainly an enigmatic employer. But then what happens in verses 6 through 7, if what was happening before was a little odd, what happens next is just flat out crazy. Look, look with me in verse 6. And about the 11th hour, that's about 5 in the afternoon, he went out and found others standing and said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Now, in the ancient world, there were, is, was no such thing as electric lighting. There certainly would have been no possibility of being able to see what you were doing once darkness hit. And that meant the workday was understood to end at 6 p.m. So at 5 p.m., he rolls up into the city square and hires one more batch of workers. Before he does so, he asks them a question. Why are you still standing here? Now that question would have been, uh, the answer to that question would have been obvious. These are the leftovers. These are the people that could not find any work that day, which means these are the people that would have had no, nothing to show for their day standing in the market square, which means these are the people that would have had no money to buy food for their families the next day. In a subsistence economy like theirs, these were the pitiable lot. These were the beggars who had nothing to show, nothing to bring back except disappointment to their homes. There's this moment in the movie Cinderella Man where Russell Crowe's character is faced with a dilemma. He is a proud man who doesn't want to take a handout from anyone, but he's living during the Great Depression. He's hurt his hand in a boxing match, and so he's unable to find work, and as a result, his family is suffering. And he has to finally swallow his pride and walk into the welfare office to receive a handout. None of us wants to be a beggar. None of us wants to be someone who needs someone else's generosity to even be able to keep our families fed. And yet that's exactly the situation this last group, this 11th hour group of workers finds themselves in. Now notice when they are hired, there's no discussion over what their pay would be. Less than an hour's work? What could they really expect? Maybe just enough for a tiny taste for their little ones. And yet these are a desperate group of men, and so they go. Maybe just hoping for some manner of generosity that might benefit their families. Well, this oddball owner's crazy hiring habits leads to the even crazier moment in 8 through 12, and that is his crazy compensation plan. Uh, the, this is where the 
we, we start to get the aha moment of the parable, verse eight. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last and up to the first. So less than an hour later, sometime around six, he gets the foreman to line them up. But strangely, he begins with the guys he just hired and then works his way backwards. It gets even stranger though in verse nine. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Each of the workers hired on the pity of this owner receive a full day's wage. What generosity! These men must have been overjoyed. This is more than they possibly could have imagined they would receive. They're going to go home and they're going to be the, the, the celebrated provider for their house for a day, even though they worked just an hour. And yet, whatever joy they must have felt, notice the, how it has the exact opposite effect on the other workers, those hired first. Verse 10 now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. So those hired at 6 a.m. and those hired at 6 p.m. get the exact same pay for the day. And as you might imagine, that seems a little unfair. Look at verse 11. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. You can understand their feelings here, can't you? Working outside under the hot Middle Eastern sun, doing manual labor for a full day, working for a full 12 hours, and then someone rolls up and they work for only one hour and they get paid the exact same way that you do. I once was doing a project with, uh, for my, <clears throat> for my uh, college uh, computer programming class. And it was one of those projects where you're lumped together with a, a, a number of people because it's a big project that takes months. And over the course of the months, it became obvious that a few of the members of our team were not pulling their weight. And those of us that were interested in getting a good grade, we worked all the harder to make sure that our project went well and we got a good grade. But Along the way, we started to build up a little bit of resentment towards the other members of our team. They're not doing their work the right way. We keep on having to do their work over for them, or we're having to do it from beginning to end ourselves. And we were even more frustrated at the end of the semester when we thankfully got an A, but they also got an A. This doesn't feel right, does it? I mean, you work hard, you expect to receive a certain amount of compensation, you earn it, you deserve it. Why should someone else receive the same amount as you if they did so much less work? Makes a total sense to us. So much of our world operates on this principle. Fair compensation for fair work. And yet, when you take this mentality and try to apply it spiritually, it does, it does such damage to your soul. See, the aha moment of this whole parable is that this whole thing, the point of it all, it's not about fairness. It's about grace. 
the aha moment, the eureka moment when the light bulb supposed to come on comes in verses 13 through 15. It's as the enigmatic employer, this oddball owner, explains his motivations. And they are of generosity and grace. Look in verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give you uh, to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? The owner reveals that his motivation is not injustice, but generosity. That this whole thing has been an exercise in his gracious mercy to a group of people that were desperate and had no hope of sustaining their families. You see, the owner has not done anyone any wrong. He has fulfilled his obligations. He has paid everyone what they expected to get. And in, but over on top of that, he has shown grace. He has given as a gift additional money beyond what is required of him to some. He has the right to do so. It's his money. It's his vineyard. He can decide how to be generous as he wants because you can't require generosity or it ceases to be generosity. Now, friends, this is all designed to teach us of the difference between God's economy and the world's economy. You see, it actually brings us all the way back to where this whole thing started. The disciples asking Jesus, well, what are we going to get then? What do we deserve? And his answer to them is, that's not the way God's economy works. In God's economy, you don't deserve or or earn. You receive. You receive grace. Verse 16 shows us that this is what Jesus is driving at. It's really the the message of the whole parable. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The world's economy tells you to work for it, to earn it, to merit it. But God's economy runs on his freely given grace. It turns the world's economy upside down so that the beggars are the ones that are richest of all. See, friends, if we take the time to think with the whole scriptures in mind, it becomes obvious how this mentality of earning and deserving is incompatible with the gospel that we have heard, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think for a question, for a second. If you are having the thought, well, I deserve good from God. Now, maybe you've grown up in church your whole life. Maybe you've never done anything quite so bad as other people, people that really fall into bad sins and make a mess of things. Maybe you've done a a good job being a good citizen. Maybe you give generously of your money. Maybe there's lots and lots of reasons you have to think, yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I deserve something from God for how well I live. And yet remember what the Bible tells us we deserve. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 tells us, you want to know what sort of compensation we have earned? Well, this is what sort of compensation. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. You see, the the tragedy working in each one of us is that we overstate 
We, are, we overestimate our ability to do right in God's eyes, and so we think we are deserving of God's goodness. And yet if we understood ourselves rightly, we would understand we are all 11th hour workers. We are all spiritual beggars. And that means we don't deserve anything from God except his punishment. But the good news is that God's economy runs on something entirely different than merit. It runs on grace. The second half of that verse, Romans 6, 23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, do you realize how when you come to grips with that you are the 11th hour worker, that you are the spiritual beggar, and Jesus is the only reason you have received anything good from God. Do you realize how that unlocks joy and peace and fruitfulness in your life? It's because that's the way God's economy works. His kingdom runs on grace, not merit. And realize it's not only the grace that saves us, it's also the grace that sustains us that lets us have confidence on a day like today, lets us even serve God with the strength that we have. Another passage in Romans, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, brothers and sisters, everything we have it's through the grace of Jesus. That's the gospel message in a nutshell, isn't it? It is the, the grace and love of Jesus to undeserving sinners. That we, if we got what we deserve from God, none of us would have a good day. We would all be under his immediate and eternal punishment forever in hell. Because our sins before a holy God deserve as much. And yet God and his love and his mercy and grace sent his son Jesus to this world. He sent him to rescue spiritual beggars like us. The richest of all, the very prince of heaven, living the perfect life as one of us. Giving his life up freely as a sacrifice for our sins. And then giving us the very treasures that, that he inherits through his resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, that means that all of us are rich when we realize that all we have is from Jesus. It's his grace to us, and that is the same grace that he uses through us toward each other. There are two core values that we have as a church, soon to be Castleton Community Church, that are directly tied to this economy of grace and love that God has poured out to us in Christ Jesus. Those two core values are as following, loving community and extravagant grace. This is what we mean by loving community. As undeserving sinners who have experienced and have been transformed by the love of Christ, we are compelled to extend Christ's love to all. We strive to be a community that embodies God's redemptive love by welcoming the stranger by bearing burdens of the broken, and by leading people to the one whose love endures forever. Our core value of loving community is most focused on how we show the love we have received from Christ 
to those in our community and around us, our neighbors, those who need so badly the same love and grace we have found. Uh, one of the ways this ex has expressed itself at our church that I'm so proud of is our biblical hospitality. Uh, I love the fact that we are a church that is known for being friendly and warm, and, and not just at a surface level, where we regularly invite people into our homes. We open up our hearts to people. We, we send them messages to encourage them, and, and even more so if we know that the Lord might be using us to introduce them to Jesus. Now, I know that makes it particularly difficult for a church that loves high fives and handshakes and hugs to be able to not, to not be able to meet together for an extended season. I know that's a, a hard, hard thing. That's why I think it's helpful for us to realize that we are being loving to the community of Castleton, loving to Indianapolis, and, and loving to the, the whole world as examples of what Christians ought to do in a situation like that by not meeting for these 30 days. See, God has been so kind to give us medical professionals, disease researchers, government officials who have expertise in this area. And when they tell us that our gathering could actually pose a threat to our community, especially to the most vulnerable in our community, love would compel us to do everything we can to keep our neighbors safe so that they might hear the very good news of Jesus, and so they might experience it, even by us going through this inconvenience of, of not meeting together. I already mentioned that church history shows us of times where believers took this difficult step in the face of various contagions and plagues that were moving through. Martin Luther is another example of this. The Black Plague came to his doorstep, and he was forced to wrestle with the question, what does faithfulness look like for Christians in the face of such a contagious and deadly plague? This is what he wrote about, wrote about in a tract. It's been circulating online. He said, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and, the pen, and thus pensions inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me and I have done what he has expected of me so I am not responsible either for my own death or for the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but I will go freely as stated above. So this is such a God-fearing faith, because it is neither brash nor foolhardy, and does not tempt God. Luther was a man of conviction. He lived that out. He actually, when they ran out of hospital beds, he actually opened up his home and brought people suffering from the Black Plague to live with him for several months. This wasn't because he was seeking danger, but because he was committed to faithfulness as a follower of Christ. So brothers and sisters, let's remember this balance we need to have. We need to be loving to our community and wise 
And that means listening to the advice our local health officials give us. As a church, that means we're not going to meet together. But for you individually, I, I strongly encourage you, familiarize yourself with the latest that the local government has given in terms of guidelines for how you should keep yourself and your community safe. Let's do this not just to be good citizens, but because we are citizens of heaven that represent Jesus. And that as his ambassadors on this earth, we want to show his love to the community of Castleton and to Indianapolis as a whole. Let's also realize that that boldness that Martin Luther spoke of is something that we need to have. That this is a time, more than ever, where our community is thinking about the reality that life doesn't go on forever. That their lives could end even suddenly. And that openness to think about the end of life gives us an opportunity to talk about the one that holds our lives, Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity to speak to anxious people, people dealing with fear who don't have the resources we do to still our hearts because they don't know what's waiting for them on the other side of death. I don't know who God's going to have in your life this week, whether it's someone you see in person or someone you can text message or call or email. But I, I want all of us to consider who God would have us speak the love of Christ into their life. Who, who would he use us to share the good news and the hope of the gospel in a day that needs it more than ever? We endeavor to be a loving community as Castleton Community Church. And that's the way we posture ourselves to our neighbors. But it also has a way that it flows into our own fellowship, and that is through our core value of extravagant grace. Extravagant grace. This is what that core value is all about. We desire to be a congregation known for joyfully blessing others with the grace God has lavished upon us. We seek to demonstrate this grace through biblical hospitality, exercising a patient and forbearing spirit and extravagantly giving of ourselves and our resources to those he has appointed us to serve. Since we have received so much from God, we don't use an I deserve mentality in the way we treat each other. No, we use the I have received from God. I have received grace to me. And now I will be a, an instrument of his grace through me to my fellow brothers and sisters. Think of the way that an I deserve mentality destroys churches. I deserve to have the sort of children's ministry exactly the way that my kids want it. I deserve to have the ministry I love most highlighted in a pulpit announcement on a Sunday. I deserve to have the ministry I'm excited about get a larger share of the budget. I deserve to have a leadership role in this church. I have to, after all, I've invested so much in it. And I deserve mentality rips churches apart. And yet I have received from God grace, and that grace is both to me and through me. That mentality, well, it unifies the church. It says that may not be the worship expression I am most excited about, but I can see that that is best for our church. That may not be my preference of the way we would do it, but for the good of our church, I, I will forbear. I will be patient with that. 
that person may be difficult to deal with, and yet I will show extravagant grace, the way God has shown grace to me and the way I will treat them. Extravagant grace certainly applies to the way we use our material gifts to our generous giving. You know, God entrusts us with finances and material wealth, and he does so partly so that we can be conduits of his grace to others. Now, now is a season where there's so much we can't do together as a church, and yet in some ways the church is uniquely positioned to step into needs in other people's lives. So let me encourage you, if God has entrusted to you financially, continue generously giving as an expression of extravagant grace. I'm so encouraged by the way our congregation has done so in the days leading up to this. Let me encourage you to continue doing so in the days ahead. I foresee many new avenues of ministry opening up where we might be able to be conduits of God's grace to each other and to our community in a way we weren't able to before, but it will require resources to do that. Realize also how your vulnerability is an expression of extravagant grace. You may say, how is me being vulnerable a way of being generous? Well, realize that the body of Christ is intended to have different parts that serve each other so that one part, when it's hurting or struggling, that another part comes alongside and helps. But it's very difficult to help if you're not willing to even admit or tell someone else that you need help. One way you can help us to be extravagant in our grace to each other is to tell someone when you are in need of help yourself. Now, our community has many ages and stages in it, and particularly if you are in an age or a stage that makes you more vulnerable to the coronavirus, I I would encourage you, think through how you can let your church family serve you. Maybe we can pick up groceries for you. Maybe we can have someone that's not as high of a risk pick up medications for you. Think through how it is you can be vulnerable and in so doing, let the body of Christ apply the grace that's been given to us and let it go through us to each other. And brothers and sisters, one thing we can certainly do, even though we are separated physically for this time, one thing there's no doubt we should be doing is having extravagant grace to each other by lifting each other up to the throne where we find that extravagant grace, by praying for each other. This is a time where a lot of us are going to have more time on our hands than ever before. Let's use that opportunity to be a community that prays for each other. One way you can do that is by using our prayer wall. Um, Maybe you're not familiar with it. There should be a link right on the same page that you're seeing the stream right now. There should be a button to take you to the prayer wall. You can post prayer requests there. You can be vulnerable in that way. But you can also let people know that you are praying for their requests. And let me encourage you to take some time, as the Lord has given you extra time this week, to spend some time on this prayer wall. Now, it's amazing that we do live in a nation that would still even call for a day of national prayer like this Sunday. So let me encourage you as a church, let's give ourselves to the ministry of prayer, both to our community and to our city of Indianapolis and certainly to the whole nation. Let's use our time this Sunday in particular. 
Let's use our time to lift up all of these concerns to the throne of grace. Because brothers and sisters, what grace we have received. Spiritual beggars that have been given so much from God. What response is there for us if not to pray? Let's also express extravagant grace to each other by exhorting each other and encouraging each other with the word. Now we won't have the opportunity to do that in person for a while, but you can use social media and text messages and phone calls to keep in touch with your small group with your small group members to reach out to people that you know might not be able to be out and about. Use this time to speak the words God has given us in scripture to each other. And trust that he will use his word to bring about the things he desires within our church community. Well, brothers and sisters, it is undoubtedly a strange Sunday. It is undoubtedly a bit of a shock to our systems with this much change over such a short period of time. And yet, let's remember the grace and love of God that's been brought to us and that's at work through us to each other. Let's remember all we have in Christ and the great reason we have for hope and security, the reason that should give us all the peace in our hearts that we could ever need. I'm gonna end this sermon by reading a longer section of of scripture from Romans chapter eight. And as I read it, I want you to think about how God has so graciously and lovingly provided all you need in Christ and how you have every reason to be confident in how he will provide for you in the days ahead. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What grace, what extravagant grace, what abounding love we have in our Savior Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, Thank you from your storehouse of riches that you have given us so extravagantly. Thank you for spiritual beggars like us, 11th hour workers that deserve nothing from you, that you have given us forgiveness, the hope of heaven, eternal life, and all the blessings we need in this day to get through it faithfully. Thank you, Jesus, we can have confidence that all those things are true of us today as they were yesterday. Oh, Jesus, would you help us now to to finish this service in a way fitting to you? Would you help us to have freedom in our hearts as we worship you? And would you enable us to live faithfully in the week ahead? 
to not give in to fear and anxiety, but to remember your grace that saved us will also sustain us. Oh, Jesus, it is marvelous the love you have shown us and the grace we have received from you. Help our hearts to worship you now as they should. In your mighty name we pray, amen.